HPPodcraft.com. It was so real to us in the old pictures, rising like a fairy tale castle out of its own dark wood, a wilderness of gables and chimneys between those two immense towers, grey stone walls mantled in ivy, mullioned windows reflecting the drifting clouds. But why had father never taken us there? And why on his deathbed had he told my brother that Rampling Gate must be torn down, stone by stone? I should have done it, Richard, he said. But I was born in that house, as my father was and his father before him. You must do it now, Richard. It has no claim on you. Tear it down. That is the opening of Aunt Rice's The Master of Rampling Gate. It's pretty weird to say that. Yeah, feels a little ghoulish to jump on an Anne Rice story when she really has just passed away. Although, if there's one person who would encourage dancing around the gravesite, it's Anne Rice. Oh, yeah. In fact, feeling that something might be ghoulish and then giving yourself over to it anyway is peak Anne Rice. <laughs> so I think we've done right by her. Who are we? We should probably say. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I am Chris Lackey, and we're here at Strange Studies of Strange Stories. This is the first free episode of 2022. Happy New Year! Yes. We are still AKA the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast, going through a slow fly-like metamorphosis in the strange studies of strange stories. It's a long process, it's gross, but you can't stop watching it. Uh, Now, as I said, she's uh, one of my favorite authors. Her bio is very familiar to me, but let's let our listeners know a little about her. Well, she was born Howard Allen Francis O'Brien in 1941, and she grew up (laughs) in an Irish Catholic family. This is what she has to say about her unusual name. Apparently, my mother thought it was a good idea to name me Howard. (laughs) My father's name was Howard, and she thought it was a very interesting thing to do. She was a bit of a bohemian, a bit of a madwoman, a bit of a genius, and a great deal of a great teacher. She had the idea that naming a woman Howard was going to give that woman an unusual advantage in the world. I think she's talking about an early play to get on our podcast. We've got Howard Phillips Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard. Oh, geez. Mom was like, I know how to give her an advantage. I know how to get this done. Girl named Howard. She was born in New Orleans, but spent most of her early life moving around Texas. When she was 15, her mother died due to alcoholism. Her father put her and her sisters in a religious academy, and she says this, it was something out of Jane Eyre, a dilapidated, awful medieval type of place. I really hated it and wanted to leave. I felt betrayed by my father. So born in New Orleans, named Howard, a childhood out of Jane Eyre, which we'll see is in the DNA of this story we're reading today. Like (laughs) Anne Rice was goth on arrival, didn't even know it yet. (laughs) Later, her father remarried and when she was 16, moved them all to North Texas where she met her future husband, Stan Rice, in a journalism class. And some of his poetry is featured in her books. I remember very cynically thinking this is literary nepotism. (laughs) He didn't earn it. But then the poems were always really good. And then I felt bad that I'd prejudged him just because they were married. And this cycle happened pretty much every time I read his stuff. But I I always really enjoyed it. Because I forgot that I'd already had that thought process. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, She went to college for a few years, but had to drop out because she was poor. She moved to San Francisco and got work as an insurance claims processor. And then she ended up re-meeting Stan, who was working for another insurance company. And then they were married (laughs) in 1961. So she's around 20. And that marriage lasted, uh, which is better than most insurance industry marriages, (laughs) as you know. 
I do know. She lived in Haight-Ashbury and later in the Castro District in the 1960s, so she was right in the middle of the hippie movement. This is what she says yeah. about all that. I'm a totally conservative person. In the middle of the Haight-Ashbury in the 1960s, I was typing away while everybody was dropping acid and smoking grass. I was known as my own square. Hmm. So she went back to school, got her degree in political science. Yeah, that sounds about right, because that's showing an early interest in narcissistic monsters. <laughs> Follows. <laughs> her first daughter was born in 1966, and after that, she went for her PhD, but she was not into literary criticism, and she just really realized she wanted to write, so she dropped out of that program. Now, in 1970, her daughter was diagnosed with leukemia, and she died two years later in 1972. Rice and her husband both had problems with alcohol abuse after that. Yeah, I learned that early on, because that was d directly related to her writing of Interview with the Vampire. Mm -hmm. And I just connected to it hard. My sister had leukemia, luckily as a survivor, but in those years, I was reading these books while we were in and around the hospital, and I lost some real good friends that were children around that time, so it would just connected on a level. And I feel like Interview with the Vampire just has that level of despair and near madness just draped all over it. It's in there. I couldn't tell you why, but it feels like it could only come out of an experience like that. I mean, obviously it's trying to keep a child immortal, but uh, it's the core of that book. I don't know. You can really, I feel like that's why it jumped out of the pack of other vampire novels. You can just really feel the depth of the horrors of life in that book. Yeah. There would be no Vampire the Masquerade if there wasn't Interview with a Vampire or the other books. Right. Even Dracula, because you have the Coppola Dracula coming out after her famous books. And what happens? Dracula's in love with Mina. Not that that trope hadn't been explored before, but mm -hmm. it definitely became a romantic vampire. That was now the tradition, yeah. you know. But then all the TV stuff that follows, too. True Blood and oh, yeah. Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. Yeah. I mean, Come on. And even right now, the big sitcom is what we do in the shadows. Yeah. Which is based on a short film that was called An Interview with Some Vampires. <laughs> you know, the, the original genesis of this hit TV show now was Interview with yeah. the Vampire. Now, they had their second child, Christopher, great name, in 1978. Yeah. And they were both able to stop drinking soon after that. After the death of her daughter, Anne Rice was still grieving. And she wrote a short story, Interview with a Vampire, that was later turned into a novel. She says was inspired by the movie Dracula's Daughter. She says here, It established to me what vampires were, these elegant, tragic, sensitive people. I was really just going with that feeling when writing Interview with a Vampire. I didn't do a lot of research. Well, that's good, because that means she didn't get all tied up in the trappings. You know, yeah. I, I, I thought it was cool that these vampires cast reflections, for example, because mm -hmm. they are real physical beings. There were lots of tropes that she turned on their head. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting influence. That's new information to me. Dracula's Daughter, I just watched that not too long ago. It's one of the less famous Universal Pictures. Came yeah. out in 1936, did not have Lugosi in it, although it was a direct sequel to Dracula. Uh, it's got, it's definitely a sexier movie. And also the Countess in the movie, it kicks off with her getting Lugosi's body to burn it because she thinks that will stop her from being a vampire. So it's presented as a, the tragic element is front and center. She's not just a monster, but sort of hates what she is. In most other vampire stories, there is an element of sexiness to it, but there, yeah. But it's a temptation. You can get this intimacy, but it's going to cost you your life or your humanity or one of these things. Whereas with Anne Rice took it and it's like, well, that's already gone. We're going to look at what these creatures are and what they have to go through and what they have to suffer through and like really deep diving into that stuff. And mm -hmm. I, maybe, maybe there were other writers that wrote things like that and I just never heard of them. But Interview with a Vampire was the first book that really got into what it was to be a vampire and what yeah. that was about and what that looked like and how it felt. It's partially really sexy and it's 
partially really horrific. Yeah. You know, like the things that they did and had to go through, but then also you get all this power, the cost of that power. It's such a great book. Well, Interview with a Vampire was published in 1976. Yeah. I didn't realize it was that old. In my mind, it was like an early 80s thing. The next book, The Vampire Listat, came out in 1985, and then Queen of mm-hmm. the Damned in 1988. It was a complete accident that I found The Vampire Lestat, or Lestat, as I called it then, because I didn't even, you know, that was Lestat to me <laughs> in junior high. <laughs> well, you read it in junior high? Yeah, I read it in junior high. I was in oh, seventh wow. or eighth grade. Yeah, I really, you know, there were a lot of, like, we were going through this bio and that she's dealing with alcoholism and cancer. And I know there was even some OCD things that were going on in her life. Yeah. And all of that stuff was present in my life, too. So there must have been some intangible connection as well. But this just stuck with me hard. And mm-hmm. I mentioned I, I've on the show before that I found the book in a box of my dad's books from paperback traders, which was a place he would go to swap things out. And I don't think he necessarily cared what they put in the box sometimes, because this is not something my dad would have been reading. Mm. It just magically fell out of that box in the garage one afternoon, at least in my memory. Mm. Uh, when I was sifting through it, it was that one, the copy with the red cover and the gold print that's a little yeah. embossed. It was like, here you go, you need this. Most people would have probably read Interview the Vampire first. I had the benefit of being totally clueless about it. It mentioned on the book that it was there was another book called Interview with the Vampire, but I didn't understand that this was a sequel to that or a prequel. It, I'm lucky it was the one I read first because even though I, I undoubtedly would have read all of Interview with the Vampire, this one, it's a marriage of the horror and misery of that book, but also Rice's other side and strength, which came out in the 80s, which is superhero fiction, like you were saying. Yeah. You know, I devoured Fra- Dracula and Frankenstein, but I was also reading comic books Maybe a few of my mom's Danielle Steele romance novels, you know. And then this thing came in, bang, it was all three. Because there's yeah. just as much like Indiana Jones style superhero stuff going on with Lestat. Yeah. That yeah. book's a rip-roaring historical adventure tale. Really one of the best prequels ever done because it completely recontextualizes the first book in a lot of respects, mm-hmm. which is neat. There are surprises in store for you about what you've already read if you read the second one. And I love it when that can happen. Mm-hmm. And also for me, it was a perfect book. <laughs> Admittedly, for a kid in the throes of puberty, you know, being in junior high, when I was falling in love at that time, it was crushing and suffocating puppy love. Oh, sure, you know, yeah. The main conflict in most of those books were people falling in love with each other. You know, it was yeah. fighting wolves and vampire covens and all that, but it's really like everybody falling in love with everybody and then breaking up in supernatural <laughs> battles. It just really had that puberty level of extreme emotion in it that connected. I mean, and you saying that just, of course, all the Twilight stuff came out of Anne Rice as well. Yeah. There would be no Twilight if there was no Anne Rice. Oh, no, no. That's the Miller light of these uh, (laughs) these stories. Well, they serve a purpose too, which I think they're good young adult novels, I think, the Twilight series. Uh, But this is different because Anne Rice is a horror writer, which we'll get to. Yeah. Now, with the success of her book, she moved back to New Orleans in 1988 and bought exactly the kind of house you would think Anne Rice would live in. I live in the dream. Now, she almost died in 1998 after she fell into a coma due to a diabetic ketoacidosis. Which I know what that is because, unfortunately, that happened to my family just last year. Oh, God. Uh, my, my nephew Ryan had to be airlifted at the hospital during a snowstorm and the pandemic because he had gone into diabetic ketoacidosis and we thought he was going to die. Uh, it was a really harrowing couple of days. That was terrifying. I can relate to Anne on that. Wow. <laughs> in some way. She also nearly died in 2004 of a bowel obstruction. Which also recently happened to my family, to uh, my mother. So, yeah. Uh, come on, Anne. What's going on here? <laughs> 
Uh, all this almost dying stuff made her give up her atheism and go back to Catholicism. All right, now we go different directions. <laughs> hey, did you read any of her uh, Christ novels? I did not, no. I was really tempted, but I just, I couldn't find the time to do something like that. Like a lot of authors, Anne Rice did drift into accidental or maybe intentional self-parody. I mean, we knew this was going to be a love fest, so I think you and I were getting out a little of the, well, I did stop reading it stuff before we jumped on. Yes. Because it, they do start to get a little, well, like I say, self, maybe self-parody, like lesser versions of what, what I loved about it. I read yeah. The Mummy, which I thought was a really cool book, actually. I still think right. that'd make a great film. I read The Witching Hour, which I enjoyed, but I remember at the time, Lyle Erickson was also reading it, and we were just laughing about some of the passages in there because there's this level of softcore pointiness to it. Mm. But... She also wrote erotica prior to the vampire stuff, so it's not too surprising. Her Sleeping Beauty books, which were somewhat controversial at the time, I seem to remember. I think there was some BDSM stuff in there, yeah, yeah. And and of course, we all remember the Rosie O'Donnell movie that was adapted (laughs) from those. (laughs) Exit to Eden. (laughs) Exit to Eden. Wildly successful film. Well... Anne Rice moved to California in 2004 to be closer to her son, and she died there just days ago from the time of this recording, December 11th, 2021. Yeah. And she's going to be interred at the family mausoleum in New Orleans. She eventually renounced the religiosity because of the bigotry and abuse and social positions of the church. But if you're going to get religious, I mean, it's super got to have a deep Catholic phase is all I'm saying. If she, you know, Anne Rice isn't going to be a Methodist. No. Obviously, it was her childhood religion, but you got to go for that one if you're going to, if you're Anne Rice. Some people were sort of mocking her when she did that, but I thought it was cool that she was still changing as a person. And I don't know, didn't bother me in the slightest. No, I can't help but love her, even though, honestly, I didn't read much of her work. I've read the first three vampire books, and then you told me in detail about (laughs) the mummy story. Yeah, that didn't sound too positive the way you said The witching hour. Oh, I remember the day. I had other things to do. (laughs) Well, no, it wasn't that. It was just like the things I vaguely remember the things you were telling me made me go, eh. (laughs) I don't need to read that. And I think uh, what was Tales from the Body Podcasting was the fourth book and you were telling me about that one and then I for sure went "Eh, yeah I'll skip maybe I'll read it someday and no I never did there's a Blistat book where he goes to Atlantis or something (laughs) that's I'm not kidding maybe I should go back that's I gotta pick these up yeah I know but I mean she wrote like just interview with a vampire (laughs) is is such a important book to our genre it's yeah it's amazing she earned her place in horror literature just for that. And everything else is gravy in my 100%. opinion. 100%. Now, this short story, The Master of Rappling Gate, was published in 1984 in Red Book. I had a graphic novel adaptation of it from 1991, adapted by James Schlosser and painted by Colleen Doran. I had the story in print on my shelf in the collection um, The Ultimate Dracula. I still have this. It's from 1991. Oh, right. And that was a great series of monster anthologies from Dell. It made me think I should check out the table of contents on some of the other ones. Well, this one, and then also The Ultimate Werewolf, mm-hmm. because those treats are coming up this year. We may yeah. be rebranding folks, but we're going to do Marches for Draculas. We will have a Werewolf History Month. We're going to have a Thulai this year, I promise <laughs> you. Last thing before we dive in, we heard some of the story at the top, and that was our fan favorite reader, Rachel Lackey. Oh, yeah. I know her. She's, uh... <laughs> What's she on? Oh, she's on that podcast, Rachel Watches Star Trek. That's right. 
which you should all check out. Let's get into the story. It's pretty standard setup. Our narrator, Julie, has just uh, had her father die, but not before he tells her brother that he wants their ancestral home destroyed, which is a pretty rock solid mm-hmm. hook, I think. Yeah. It's set in 1888 in London, but the house that they want to go to is called Rappling Gate, and it's in the countryside. They're both confused as to why their dad would want it destroyed. They used to have paintings of Rappling Gate in their London home, but their father took them down one night after there was an incident when she was six years old. She remembers that they were at Victoria Station. Her father saw this handsome young man on one of the trains and he flew into a very atypical rage. He says, unspeakable horror (laughs) that he should dare to come to London. It is not enough for him to be the undisputed master of Rappling Gate. This was weird to her because Rappling Gate was her father's house. So why would he say these things? And right away because of that little train passage, you see that this is a Dracula angle. He's mad that the the, the vampire's coming to town from the mm-hmm. wilds to the city. Yeah. Now, Julie and Richard don't know what to do about their father's dying wish to destroy this awesome mansion. So they decide that maybe they should go to Rappling and check it out, figure out maybe why their father was so worked up about it. They want to do it and they talk themselves into it. Obviously, this is a story from Red Book in the 80s. So the writing is going to be pacey, cinematic, modern, a little different than what we typically read. But in what we typically read, this backstory about her father getting angry when the train passed by, etc., that would be internal narrative. We would find out from somebody thinking to themselves Mm. and recalling it. But here she's got Julie and Richard drinking sherry and getting it all out in dialogue, like a scene from Dark Shadows. (laughs) Obviously not a human conversation conversation. That's the sort of romance novel touch to these things. The people in these books are already vampires in a way because they're all witty and beautiful and charming and often rich. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's romantic in all senses of the word. Now, they arrive at the house and it is amazing. And there is a blind housekeeper, Miss Blessington, who greets them and is super jazzed about Rappling's being in the house again. It's a step-by-step Dark Shadows Jane Eyre, turn of the screw tradition. The woman with beautiful hair we expect to be fleeing from this gothic mansion, except it's Anne Rice. So she's not a governess. She's an independent woman, and she's going to run into the mansion as fast as she can. Also, we rolled by a section there earlier where she was recalling this man that her father saw in the train that set him off. And she only had a glimpse, but it says, I realize now that in those few remarkable moments, he had created for me an ideal of masculine beauty that I have never questioned since. And it is likely that she's a writer who's a woman, and maybe that is why this is. But one neat thing in Anne Rice's books is that the male characters, they stand in for a lot of wish fulfillment. They do lots of things that as a young kid I wished I could do, even flying. But they are also objects of desire, which is quite Mm -hmm. a bit different uh, from what I was reading. Her characters are somewhat pansexual. They fall in love with a vampire, not the gender, really. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, that graphic novel of this and the guy at the house he's you know Mm -hmm. the way he's drawn is very kind of androgynous but he's got broad shoulders kind of pouty lips his shirt's unbuttoned all the way to his navel (laughs) you know kind of the 80s mullet sort of thing going on (laughs) even though it's set in the 1880s it's pretty great and it feels right it feels like it would be an an Anne Rice character that's what I I envisioned them to look like she is you know her favorite character is the fop who can beat your ass (laughs) Julia and Richard, they eat, they play billiards, they have a great time. They have no idea why anyone would think there was anything wrong with this place. They ask Mrs. Blessington if she knows anyone that might have shown up and freaked out their dad, but she doesn't. In fact, there are no ghost stories or anything about this place. Are there no ghost stories, Mrs. Blessington? And she says, oh, no, darling, no ghost would ever dare to trouble Rampling Gate. She's blind, so lots of I've never seen anything around here suspicious. (laughs) 
no ghost would ever dare to trouble Rampling Gate. Uh-huh. They both stay there for weeks, and it's great. Rampling is the village that's nearby, is great. Richard is bummed because he doesn't want to destroy this amazing place, but also he doesn't want to deny his father's dying wish. So Julie suggests, get some advice. Write the lawyers, write your clergyman. Maybe they can give you some perspective that you need to make this decision. To make the decision you want to make, right? Because yeah. it's the old, <laughs> well, maybe somebody else can tell us that he was nuts and that we don't have to do what he wanted. That's, exactly. You know, that's really what they're trying to do. That night, Julie can't sleep and decides to do a little house exploring. And down in the library, she sees someone, probably her brother, looking at some papers. But it was not Richard. It was the same young man I had seen on the train in Victoria Station 15 years ago. And not a single aspect of that taut young face had changed. There was the very same hair, thick and lustrous, and only carelessly combed as it hung to the collar of his black coat, and those dark eyes that looked up suddenly and fixed me with a most curious expression as I almost screamed. We stared at each other across that shadowy room, I stranded in the doorway, he visibly and undeniably shaken that I had caught him unawares. My heart stopped. And in a split second, he rose and moved towards me, closing the gap between us, reaching out with those slender white hands. Julie, he whispered in a voice so low that it seemed my own thoughts were speaking to me. But this was no dream. He was holding me and the scream had broken loose from me, deafening, uncontrollable and echoing from the four walls. Now this guy disappears and Julie continues to scream. Richard, he comes in, calms her down. She explains that it was the man from the train all those years ago. He goes, you're probably dreaming, sleepwalking, but she says, no, he touched me. He called me Julie and I didn't light that fire, pointing at the fire (laughs) that he was hanging out by. And the fire goes, yeah. She goes to the desk and looks at what this guy was looking at. And these are the papers, the letters that Richard was writing, the letters to the lawyers and his clergymen. She gets kind of worked up about this. Richard is confused that this could be the guy from so many years ago and that she would recognize him. She says, dear God, he's read your letters about tearing down the house. So that's bad news. This creature knows we're going to destroy its habitat. I'm reading this in a Dracula anthology and it's an Anne Rice story. I know it's a vampire. Mm-hmm. They don't know that, though. So you would think they'd be a little more stunned that there was this invader and all this kind of stuff. But she goes right to the fact that he's investigating them. This is why we're in trouble. <laughs> I just accept this premise. We're going to be in a lot of trouble now that he knows what we intend to do. So the next day, they do a thorough searching of the house, but they only get halfway through in a day because the house is so flipping big. Yeah. Or... They're really lazy, which is like when my kids clean their room, it takes them two hours because they get distracted. They start playing with their toys halfway through it. Same thing here, probably. Or Anne Rice just didn't want them to find certain things because it's even mentioned that there are probably dungeons in the house in one line. But they're like, whatever, we'll get to that later. As if that wouldn't be the first place you would go the minute you came in. Julie begs Richard to leave a note that says they won't destroy the house for the stranger. And Richard's like, this is the guy that father wanted us to destroy the house over and you want me to appease him? He goes, we need to leave. And she's like, no, no, I've got to stay. I've got to solve this mystery. I would have liked to seen what that letter looked like though. (laughs) Dear weird intruder. That night, Julie, she doesn't undress. She just sits in her chair and waits for the guy to show up. And he does. This time, he's not running off. She says, you're not a spirit. His boots have mud on them, and there's a smear of dust on his white cheeks. She gets a bit sexy and swoony with him. His lips had a ruddy look to them, a soft look for all his handsomeness, as if they had never been kissed. That's biology. Your lips are puffy and soft until they've been kissed. (laughs) 
how humans are. <laughs> the sexiness is shooting through the roof, and he moves in for a kiss. He asks before he does, and he puts his lips on her neck and says, I would never harm you. No harm ever for the children of this house. Just a little kiss, Julie, and the understanding that it imparts, that you cannot destroy Rappling Gate, that you can never, never drive me away. Now, Julie has this transcendent experience from this kiss. She falls, catching the window frame, and there's a tingling on her throat and a throbbing where he kissed her on her neck. And she says, I knew at that moment what he was. By the way, the townspeople, interestingly, are like reverse townspeople in this story. Yeah. They love it. They love that house. They think we're all safe here. That person in that house protects us. It's just much more like a mafia type figure would do. If we think mm -hmm. about Dracula, the townspeople were terrified of him. He preyed right. on them. Yeah. Whereas this is a lot more like he's running a protection game. You know, these people get anything they want and they're safe from everybody. Therefore, they won't turn me in. They yeah. won't allow somebody to hurt me because uh -huh. they're benefiting. It's actually a lot more realistic that the townspeople would be that way for a vampire, if it was a smart vampire. The guy looks troubled by all this, and she sees that there's blood on her neck, and she says out loud, vampire. And she says, and yet you suffer so, and it is as if you could love. And he says, love? I have loved you since you came. I loved you when I read your secret thoughts and had not yet seen your face. Now, were you worried that they were related? Was I worried? I was not worried, no. The thought crossed okay, my mind, cool. but it's, you know, it's Anne Rice, so. Yeah, I know, but even so, I don't, if this is a great, great, great granddad, then I'm just creeped. But luckily we find out later that's not the case. It's not the case, no. Since they're not related, I wasn't creeped out that he was reading her secret thoughts against her will. <laughs> he takes her up to part of Rampling Gate that her brother and her had yet to investigate. And mm. it's basically his vamp pad. <laughs> In the very midst of the chaos lay my poems, my old sketches, early writings I had brought with me and never unpacked. No bed though, very curious. Mm. Wait a minute, is this guy a vampire? He moves to kiss her again, and she says to him, my father knew you were here. And he says, yeah. And his father before him, and all of them in an unbroken chain over the years. Out of loneliness or rage, I know not which, I always told them. I always made them acknowledge, except. Whew, not related, he just made them into slaves. I'm much yeah. more comfortable with that. Yeah. Totally cool. He takes her to the window to look out over the valley and truly begins to have a vision. It's of the past. Hmm, very Howard of her to do this. Oh, it is, isn't it? A flashback to the distant past. Uh, the vision is of her and the stranger riding on horseback in a village that she somehow knew was called Norwood. There was a castle where Rappling Gate now stands. There is a lord of the castle who is gaunt and white-skinned. The young stranger that she's with now stepped up to the Lord's arms and the Lord kissed him on the neck, but then he pushed himself away from this Lord. So it's all a little flashback of how this vampire came to be. And it's a little bit like the concurrently published Vampire Lestat. I don't know which one of these came out first, but in, in that book, there's an old monster in the ruins of a castle who likely wants to give up his legacies, just live too long. Now in the Vampire Lestat, that was a moment of true horror though when he is sent into the dungeons of that vampire's lair and realizes that there's all of these corpses around that look just like him. Oh, right, yeah. Do you, do you remember that? Oh, and that yeah, the vampire that, yeah. is, yeah, he's been doing this for a while, trying to find one that'll climb out. And, and so he's just been murdering all these people and it's really scary and gross. And that's the last thing to come around to about Rice. I've said she does superhero and romance and these vampires and stuff, but she's a horror writer. This isn't Twilight. 
this isn't a romance with a vampire element. Oh, yeah. Uh, there is, I always think of it as like there's the smell of corpses under the perfumed lotus blossoms. You know, nothing is sweet without the sickly in what she writes. And this moment, come, there's a moment coming up here, which we're about to yeah. see that's just like that. This vision she's having changes to the smell of death. It's the Black Death, and it has come to Norwood. And everyone is pretty much dead, but not this stranger. Not yet. She sees some gruesome stuff as the young man is looking around in all the houses for any survivors. And he finds a reeking place where a child screamed on the floor. Mother and father lie dead in the bed. And the sleek, fat cat of the household, unharmed, played with the screaming infant, whose eyes bulged in its tiny, sunken face. God. That's perfect. That's the horror of the story. It's just what an image, though. It's plunges into your psyche, then you can't unsee that the minute she introduces this concept of the fat cat playing with the child. Of course, the cat's fat. You know, what's going to happen yeah. when it's not so fat anymore? And so it, oh, that was pretty awful. And Julie is horrified by this. She screams, stop it. But the stranger says he can't make it stop. It goes on forever. With a great shriek, I kicked at the cat and sent it flying out of the filthy room, overturning the milk pail as it went. Death in all the houses of Norwood, death in the cloister, death in the open fields. So there's just bodies everywhere. Now he staggers out of the village and up to the castle. He's dying too. He begs the Lord of the castle for life, but the Lord says that he can only offer him damnation. He says, well, it's still living, so I'll take it. And the Lord drains him of blood, and then he offers his blood to the young man. Julie screams, don't do it. And he looks at her and he says, what would you do? Would you go back to Norwood? Would you open those doors one after another? Would you ring the bells in the empty church? And if you did, who would hear? And she has no answer to that, and the young man takes the blood. Immortality was his, and the bloodthirst he would need to sustain it, and that thirst I could feel with my whole soul. The interesting thing here, like you were saying earlier, that she was really exploring what it is to be a vampire. She cracked something, and maybe it's present in something before Anne Rice, but that he drink the, the vampire drinks the blood and then gives the blood back. I mean, we have a little of that in Dracula, right? When she drinks out of his chest. But yeah. mm-hmm. also in Dracula, he seems like he's making vampires willy-nilly by just biting them. I just remember going, okay, it's an intentional thing that happens. It's a process. They have to want to do it. There's mm-hmm. no accidental vampires running around. Yeah. And that that helped me <laughs> just sort of accept the reality that these things would be around and not just you know, a zombie outbreak. Yeah, exactly. Julie's vision continues and time moves on. The village melts into the earth. The forest falls silent. A new village is built and a new house over the castle. All the stones of Rampling Gate were from the old church and the vision ends and she's back in the tower. Yeah, this 400-year-old place, this house, it's made from reclaimed castle and town, essentially. So it's much older than even the 400-year date that they've been putting on it. Mm -hmm. It's from his original plague-stricken village, this house. He says... It is my shrine, my sanctuary. It is the only thing that endures as I endure, and you love it as I love it, truly. You have written it. You love its grandeur and its gloom. She asks, what does he want from her? She has this other vision. This time they're in London, walking in the gaslights. There's all these people around, and she could smell blood. There's a theater, an opera, capes and hats. Uh, She's craving blood, and he takes her inside this place, and there are people there, and he says, drink. They are your victims. They will give you eternity. You must drink. And she does so, and she feels the warmth filling her, and her vision ends. But she doesn't want it to end. She enjoys this feeling. And he tells her Mm -hmm. he subjugated her ancestors, but he doesn't want that with her. He wants her to be his bride. And... She's up for it. She's up for being with this guy because he's hot and she wants to drink some blood. What's a little serial murder for the next few hundred years? It's great, except for that. 
we move into the future. Eventually, she gets Richard to sign over Rappling Gate to her so that Richard won't have the power to take the place apart since it would be Julie's domain. And since Julie didn't actually hear her father say that he wanted it destroyed, then, you know, they're in the clear. It's the workaround he's been hoping for. And again, that's a through line of the whole story, which is turning on exact words only. Now, Julie tells her brother to stay at Rappling Gate as long as he likes. Don't worry about it. He doesn't seem to understand what changed her mind, but you know, what are you going to do? It all worked out for him. They leave for London and he stays in Rappling Gate. And we end with this. I waved until I couldn't see him anymore. The flickering lamps of the town were lost in the deep lavender light of the early evening, and the dark hulk of Rampling Gate appeared for one uncertain moment like the ghost of itself on the nearby rise. I sat back and closed my eyes. Then I opened them slowly, savoring this moment for which I had waited so long. He was smiling, seated in the far corner of the leather seat opposite, as he had been all along. And now he rose with a swift, almost delicate movement and sat beside me and enfolded me in his arms. It's five hours to London, he whispered. I can wait, I said, feeling the thirst like a fever as I held tight to him, feeling his lips against my eyelids and my hair. I want to hunt the London streets tonight, I confessed a little shyly, but I saw only approbation in his eyes. You'll love the house in Mayfair, I said. Yes. And when Richard finally tires of Rampling Gate, we shall go home. And that's the end of the story. Now, do you think that they are really in love? Or did Dracula just acquire that property he wanted in London? Because it ends with her saying, you know, you'll love the house in Mayfair. So he's getting what he wanted. He's getting Mm. the thing that her father was so scared of when he saw him in the train. This guy's trying to leave and get out into the city. Mm -hmm. Now it's happening. Yeah. So there is a little question in that ending there because she's under the vampire spell. Or are they really in love? He just got a new property. That's what I think. (laughs) (laughs) And somebody to hang out with until he gets bored. Well, Anne Rice is, she wrote some amazing stuff. I mean, we could talk about her forever and we've actually have talked about her much longer than (laughs) we normally talk about authors because she had such a huge influence on both of us. I'm sad to hear that she passed. Condolences to her family and, you know, she gave the world a lot. So, yeah, hell of an accomplishment, I think. Yeah. Thank you, Rachel, for reading this week, as always. You can hear Rachel, of course, on Rachel Watches Star Trek. We're finally getting into some good stuff. I keep saying that, but it's true. Emotional connection Rachel's getting with Star Trek, which is... Oh, with Star Trek. Yeah, Star Trek. Not not me. No, no, no. She doesn't yeah. have any emotional... Purely <laughs> transactional, our relationship. <laughs> I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you can find us at HP Podcraft and Patreon. HPPodcraft.com.